This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Whether you have a PhD or not, that's not the mark of being a scientist. It's doing science. If you look at people who are successful in science, they don't all come from the same three Ivy League schools. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we hear from two master's students who want to take the next step. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 173. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good evening, Dan. We are recording late tonight. That is how life goes sometimes. Hopefully we can keep awake for the entire episode. We've got a good one in store, a mailbag episode. So those are some of our favorites. I love a mailbag. I love when our listeners write in questions. And and these are some good questions tonight. They're they're tricky. There are lots of parts. Uh, To get us started, Josh, we do have a beer and it's our classic style. It is an IPA. Tell us about what you picked up. Yeah, Dan, we... We famously or infamously in the early years of the podcast took flack from drinking too many IPAs on the show, and I fear that the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction where we avoid IPAs, but not tonight, Dan. In fact, I have a whole series of IPAs coming up over the next few weeks, so look forward to or avoid those. But we are kicking it off tonight with Jackie O's Mystic Mama West Coast Style IPA. This is from Jackie O's Brewing in Athens, Ohio. And Dan, I want to let you know there is some method to my madness in choosing these beers. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. We like to occasionally not just drink a beer and say, this tastes good or this doesn't taste good. But, you know, we like to always be learning. Right, Dan? I think that's true. Uh, Mostly (laughs) we just like drinking beer and talking about it. But yeah, go ahead. Sure. I'll I'll go with you. Well, I thought, you know, we haven't actually gone through learning about what the different types of IPAs actually mean. So tonight we are drinking this West Coast style IPA. Dan, you know what a West Coast... (laughs) <laughs> good point the west Touché. coast of lake erie maybe <laughs> there you go uh, but dan do you know do you actually know what a west coast style ipa is i realized i did not actually know uh this one is quite bitter i just tasted it so i'm guessing it has something to do with more hops or more of a certain style of hops well i'm glad you said that dan because that would be right on brand with a west coast ipa because they are typically known for having a bold hop aroma and high bitterness, which is what you observed in this beer. Um, The reason for that is a West Coast style IPA is typically brewed with lots of hops actually in the boil kettle. And Dan, I know we have made beer before, so you steep the, the big sack of grains like in the hot water, but you can actually add hops at that step where you're boiling those hops Um, in the mash. And so West Coast IPA tends to have lots of hops being boiled in. And so what that does is that brings out a lot of that bitter hop flavor. So West Coast IPA will tend to have a little more bitterness and a high, uh, a little more of a high bitterness profile than the New England IPA or hazy IPA, which I imagine we might talk more about in a future episode. Okay. I, I buy that. And have you sampled yours, Josh? I have. You know, I like a good hazy IPA. 
But I also, Dan, I think because I haven't had as many of these, when I see New England IPA or Hazy IPA, my reflex is to just go with that one because I know I'm going to like it. But I, this one has got me thinking, like, sometimes I miss that piney flavor. You know, I feel like in yeah, the old the days of drinking IPAs when there was only, like, three out there, they were more this style, right? They were more this piney bitterness that I actually kind of have a nostalgic enjoyment of. Yeah, and I'm glad we chose it at this point in the cycle. I know I have a whole box of beer that you picked out. Uh, this is one of those flavors where it is delicious ice cold and it is not going to be delicious in about 15 <laughs> minutes as it warms up to room temperature. So we're going to have to drink fast tonight, Josh. Well, if there's evidence I like this, Dan, if you can see on the video, we've got video going in the background. Sometimes we get through an episode and I have had two sips of the beer because I don't like it. But this one, I mean, I'm making good progress so far. All right. Should have gotten a six pack next time. <laughs> Should have. All right, Dan. Well, why don't we thank some people? Let's start with Promega, Josh. You can find Proteomics content on the Promega Student Resource Center. Discover Proteomics methods and techniques, express and detect proteins, examine protein interactions, and more. You just go to promega.com slash helloproteins this time. So check that out. All right, Dan. We also wanted to say a special thank you to our new Patreon patrons. Thank you to Dana and Sam, who have joined our growing uh, Patreon community. And we've already talked in the Slack channel, so it's good to welcome you two, and uh, we'll continue the conversation on the other side. All right, Dan, I think it's time. Let's jump into the mailbag. All right, Dan, we got, some, we got some pretty nuanced questions this week, which, honestly, a lot of things you deal with in grad school aren't always black and white, and sometimes they're complicated. And so, um, so these two messages we got kind of have a theme. So why don't you uh, walk us through them? Yeah, lots going on and, and questions layered upon questions. So I will do mostly paraphrasing of these emails. They're a little bit long uh, to just read verbatim. But the first one comes from Nikki, and Nikki works in industry. She started as uh, basically a lab tech and has, over the last three or four years, moved up to associate scientist, to scientist, and is up for another promotion. So Nikki is making great progress in industry with a bachelor's degree. While she's there, she realized, maybe I want to get a PhD. Actually, I I think this has been a long-term dream for her. She says, I applied to PhD programs in December 2019 and was rejected from all of them because of my industry research experience was not enough and my undergrad GPA was too low. So this was a few years ago. Maybe those numbers were not where they needed to be. Um, One PhD program accepted me to their master's program to gain more experience. And so she took that offer and that's partially paid for by the company she works for now, which I think is great for people who maybe want to get that extra training, but they're in industry. Definitely check out programs like that. So she's doing her master's part-time, working full-time, and I think getting a little bit burned out and standing at this crossroad of stepping fully onto that academic PhD track and continuing working in industry. So uh, she says, I feel stuck and lacking is that I do not have a lot of experience in molecular biology. I do enjoy the industry part that I'm working on, but I want to move on to my passion for microbiology and immunology, more disease-related research. So basically, she's pulled between these two worlds, this industry world and getting a PhD, which she thinks she'd really love to to go do more academic research. 
And she says, this is the part that kind of struck me, Josh. So she says, what it comes down to is that I do not feel like I can be considered a true scientist if I have not published research or I just stay with a master's degree. Since my end goal is industry, sometimes or most of the time, it is not necessary to have a PhD if you have enough experience with a master's degree. But I feel if I don't pursue a PhD, I will be letting my ultimate goal down and having a what if and not feeling like a real scientist. And basically she concludes, would you consider her a scientist now if she just has a master's degree and works in industry? Thank you so much for your help. It's truly appreciated. Lots, lots going on there, Josh. And I, I probably cut out really important parts, but the upshot is she's pulled between these two worlds. Um, she loves doing research. I think she would like a job doing more molecular biology or something more related to health because she's working in cosmetics right now. But ultimately, it's about her identity. Is she a scientist if she doesn't get a PhD? Well, I think, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. But I think an easy answer is to her question, am I a real scientist right now? And the answer is obviously yes. And I imagine many of our listeners are yelling, into their car speakers or their ear pods. Nikki, yes, of course you're, you're a scientist. Uh, here's some evidence. If you don't believe me, you don't want to take my word for it. First of all, in the first sentence of her email, Dan, I can't remember if you exactly said this, but she said, I currently work in research cosmetic microbiology and my title is scientist. <laughs> like on her tax can't form, get more clear than that. when it says, what is your job? She writes scientist, right? And, and you know, she says, and the other thing that struck me, which I think is fantastic and says a lot about Nikki, is during her time in this company, she started out as a lab tech, presumably in some sort of entry type job. She's been promoted at least twice to associate scientist, to scientist in three and a half years working in the same lab. So this group obviously sees her potential, sees how skilled she is in doing science, which is what she's doing because that's her title. Um, and the other that's thing I said, Nikki, you know, and, and a lot of times I've heard students say this. I've actually heard PhD. I have most often heard PhD students say this to me while they're in school, while they're in their PhD training as graduate students saying, you know, I don't feel at all like I'm a scientist yet, or maybe I won't ever feel like I'm a scientist. And what I say to them is, all right, if a camera person was following you around at random points during the day and filming you, and then showed that to a room full of people and said, what is this person's job? And you're standing there pipetting stuff or, you know, in your lab coat, cutting stuff up or whatever. They'd say, oh, that's a scientist. Well, of course you're a scientist. You are doing science every day. You are a scientist, right? Having a PhD or you're going to some type of school. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Like, that's not what makes you a scientist. It's doing science. You are there doing science. And, you know, Nikki even has the title to go with it, right? The job title to do it. So yes, I wanted to get that out of the way. 100%, Nick, you obviously are a scientist. Whether you have a PhD or not, that's not the mark of being a scientist. It's doing science. No, I think I think that's exactly right. And, and I want to get to the more nuanced question because it's about what does it feel like to be a scientist? And I think you would probably agree, Josh, there's a difference between uh, if you are a lab technician right now and you are able to complete the experiments or, or to do the protocol, but you are not thinking about how that fits into the, the broader research goals. If you maybe don't understand how all the parts really fit together and why you're doing these steps, 
um, I think there are things to learn. And so let's talk a little bit about that more nuanced uh, path that you take in a PhD program or a master's program to feel like a scientist, if, if, that's, a, if that's where you're headed. Yeah, it is. And, and I think, but I think one additional thing that Nikki might be experiencing when she says she is not sure she feels like a scientist could be more that she's mentioned some, some topics that she's really interested in within the realm of science that she's not yet had an opportunity to do. And so I think what maybe she might mean if she unpacks it a little bit more is I don't feel like I'm yet doing the type of science and being the type of scientist that I ultimately would like to be I think uh, that's fair. based on the types of questions. Exactly. So, so how do you get there? I think that's sort of a, a big question that's, that's kind of beneath the surface here. And what Nikki has going for her is clearly she's motivated. Clearly she has an aptitude for thinking like a scientist for doing work in a scientific setting I think it's important to continue to be aware of that and pursue that. You know, I think one way that Nikki could think about this is actually putting a positive spin on this dilemma. In some ways, she's caught between two good choices, because on the one hand, she's in this job and in this career that she's really excelling in as an industry scientist, PhD or not. And so that's one option she has on the table. If she could continue down this path, probably continue to get promoted. It sounds like even within her current situation, she has the opportunity to even pursue a PhD within that context, maybe just not following the exact same research topic or path that she thought she wanted to do. All right. So, so one option would be just do that. What I don't actually know, but but Nikki could think about is in the context of that PhD program, is there some opportunity or ability to move closer to the direction she wants to go in? Uh, maybe there's not, but if there is, then that could be a very convenient way to move in that direction. And you know, many people get to the end of graduate school and realize that the type of research they've been doing in grad school is not exactly what they were wanting to do. And then in a, their next step, maybe as a postdoc or something else, then they really zero in on a different type of research or reimagine themselves as a scientist. But the other thing you could do is make that decision to step out of that comfort zone and try something new. I mean, you said you have this opportunity to volunteer in a lab over the summer, gaining these skills, I mean, that could be good. My only concern with that would just be, you know, depend. are you able to do that while earning income as an industry scientist, depending on your financial situation? Doing work for free is something I less am a fan of. Money is <laughs> so overrated, Josh. It's just the love of the science. Well, and, you know, Nikki here is a skilled scientist. Okay, let's, right. let's not lose sight of that. So, you know, I feel like Nikki stepping foot into any laboratory – even if it's a field she has not been part of before, her services have a value beyond just free experience, in my opinion. But yeah. that's just me. Yeah, I want to I want to unpack a little bit um, what happens in a PhD program to help Nikki understand what it is she's missing and what it is she isn't missing. So, I mentioned before, let's say you're a lab tech, you're able to perform the protocol. You don't necessarily know why you're doing the steps and you don't necessarily know how it fits into the broader picture or why this experiment is, you know, was selected as a way to prove some point. So I think there's coursework that happens in, at least in the U S in graduate programs. And 
for me at least, and I don't know about you, for you, Josh, that did give me a pretty good context for how, basically how, how cell biology worked, how physiology worked, how these systems work together. So if you're just reading papers in your particular field, you're looking very deeply into a very narrow slice of scientific world. And you don't necessarily see how the, the pieces connect together. Um, you might learn the names of certain proteins or molecules, but you don't actually know how a muscle fiber moves. So I think for me, at least, taking classes gave me a lot of background and basis for understanding some of the research that I was doing. Taking biochemistry, you learn why you're putting buffers <laughs> into your PCR reactions. It's, it's like all of these uh, pieces that you're not going to learn by doing it necessarily. You do have to have that coursework. But I think Nikki is getting that coursework, right? The master's program is coursework. The, the piece that she's missing is that dissertation. And so that brings me to the second part of PhD training, which is the, the why. So th this is the how do, how do I come up with a question? How do I break that question down into experiments that I can use to prove certain points? How do I look at my own results with the kind of critical and cynical eye that says, this is how a reviewer is going to push back on this, and so I need these 15 controls? That you get through experience, and she's, she may be getting that through her actual daily work. And so I think this master's program is giving her a broad basis, maybe the background in, in the science, and maybe her job. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know for you, Nikki, what your job is like, uh, whether you kind of somebody comes up with a research plan and you just carry it out, or whether you're able to think about, uh, here are the ways that I'm going to prove that this molecule is improving the cosmetic in this way. Only you can know that. But that's the other piece. That's what a dissertation is evidence of, is that you've gone through that scientific thinking process. I think you're absolutely right, Dan. At the end of the day, a lot of a research-based PhD program is just experience doing science that enables you to think scientifically to answer questions about problems. And I would guess, based on what little we know from Nikki, that Nikki is already building a pretty solid foundation of how to do that. And one of the beauties of a PhD is, unlike a lot of technical training, it's not necessarily preparing you in your marketability is not just for a specific technical career, right? Like if I train to be a pediatrician, the job that I will do is being a pediatrician. And I might even specialize right. to be even more of a specialized type of pediatrician. But as a PhD, that's there are many disadvantages to doing graduate school. It's really hard and it's, it's really a pain in the butt a lot of the times. But if there is an advantage, one advantage is you really have a pretty broad set of careers that you are marketable for because it's more a way of thinking about problems that can be applied in a lot of different ways. Thank you. Yeah, I, that, is what I, that is a piece of what I was trying to say, and I, I think you expressed it really well. It is a way of thinking. So I think Nikki is probably getting that. And I guess one thing I would encourage Nikki to do, whether she decides to stay and do, you know, do the path she's on now, or whether she decides to jump ship and really try to move in a, in a topical direction that she's more interested in, I think she can get there either way. I mean, she knows the details. But what I want to make sure is she doesn't sell herself short and that she really describes the experience and the knowledge she already has um, as she pursues these other opportunities and really advocates for 
who she is, what she knows, what she brings to the table um, as she goes out to to pursue these other opportunities. Because I think she's going to be a real asset to any PhD program, any lab that's out there, even if it's a lab that's in a different type of field. Because, you know, it's worth saying, Dan, like I was talking about postdocs, you know, much of the time, or, or even in a PhD program, there is very little expectation that an incoming PhD student or a postdoc knows all the technical stuff for that specific type of research. In fact, in many PhD programs, you could be totally switching fields and that is accepted. So I think Nikki, you've got what it takes. um, And I feel confident you can leverage that to get where you want to go. Yeah. My last piece of advice is this sounds like a great opportunity uh, to not ask two yahoos with a podcast uh, to go out and, and find mentors or do some informational interviews. Find people with PhDs in industry. Find, you know, find that job that you want and find out how those people got there. And do the PhDs regret getting PhDs? Was it harder for them to find jobs in industry? Do the people with masters really feel like they were stymied by not having a PhD? Like These are questions that, that people will talk to you about and they will have firsthand experience rather than <laughs> Josh and I drinking IPA and, and wondering. But uh, I agree, Josh. I think Nikki is on the right track. And it's a tough decision. But I think there have been enough people that have gone before her, she can find examples. I'm only worried about the pay cut that she's probably gonna have to take to go back to grad school. <laughs> also true. Also true. All right, Dan, well, let's move on to our second email of the night. Okay. This one comes from C. C starts with a little backstory. I took the dental admissions test, did decently well, applied to schools, and got rejected by all of them. I think there's a theme here with um, plan A not working out for, <laughs> for both letters here. In thinking about what to do next, I found a small school near me that had a master's program in biomedical science. I figured, I guess I'll do a master's while I wait to reapply to dental school. Little did I know this would change my entire career. So I got to the master's program, I was able to find a lab and do independent research, and I fell in love with the idea of becoming a full-time scientist. I was also fortunate enough to have some teaching positions that gave me a lot of great experience. And this, too, pushed me in the PhD direction. I think, so far, Josh, this is sounding great for somebody who wants to do a PhD. If you want to teach and do research, you are the one person. Most people want to do research and not teach, or teach and not do research. If you like both, that's great. Um, I applied to PhD programs three times. The first two times I got interviews and was waitlisted and then was rejected. The same thing happened my second time. So this third time, I applied to the small college where I did my undergraduate degree. I was fortunate enough to finally gain admittance to a program, and I couldn't be more excited. That was until my current PI, I work as a research associate, made me feel terrible about my choice in school. My PI was focusing on the prestige of the university and was telling me things like, you're never going to get a good job if you choose this school even though the labs in the program are NIH-funded and collaborate with Campus Medical School. So I'm going to pause right there, Josh. The irony of the PI working at the school that the PI is bad-mouthing just like, took my breath away when I first read this letter. Yeah, I think that's where it's important to never rely too heavily on one person's experience, <laughs> one person's opinion, for sure. And I know there's a question that's coming about the importance of quote-unquote prestige of a university. I don't know if you want to camp out here a minute, Dan, or we'll, we'll get to that. No, I just wanted to, to make fun of the PI for a minute. So, <laughs> so I'm done with that. I'll Duly noted. Yeah. I stuck with my decision, even though my current PI made me feel bad about my choice. 
Uh, this university's PhD program is a bit different in that you do not rotate between labs during your studies. You find a faculty member whose work interests you beforehand, form a relationship with that PI, and then ask if they have funding to take on a student. So long story made short, my intended PI hit me with a bombshell news last week that she is relocating to another university, which is halfway across the U.S. and doesn't have a PhD program. So basically, the, the PhD that C was signed up for and ready to join, the door closed. Uh, and so the first question, Ouch. yeah, that's it's rough. So the first question C asks is, am I allowed to be mad at this PI? I know that people move and plans change, but it was such an unexpected news to hear out of the blue, and I can't help but be a little upset. Uh, you want to you feel that? Is C allowed to be upset? I mean, you're definitely allowed to be upset, right? Seeing it from different perspectives, you know, I'm always a big fan if somebody thinks somewhere is not the right place to be, make a move, right? If you need to, I hope that this PI or any PI who's making a change like this is thoughtful about the way they uh, are transparent with the people in their group that it's going to impact. So I guess depending on if they were or weren't, <laughs> then maybe you could be mad about that. Is Do you think that C has an opportunity to find another lab at the same school or you think that, that is not an option? Well, I think that's what I would want to know. And that would be my advice for, for C. Because I know one of the questions that they have is, well, what do I do now, right? Do I just take a year off? Do I now try to go to some other school or, or what do I do? And so I think, you know, C mentioned that this was a type of program where they actually, and probably why C is so mad, <laughs> sought out this PI ahead of time that they were going to work with in this PhD program. And now here at the beginning, this PI is bailing and going somewhere else. So I think what would be important is to have a conversation with a director of graduate studies or some other leader um, in the program that you're part of. This is probably not the first time that this has happened where an advisor of a graduate student moved or died or lost funding or some, for some other reason, you know, was unable to support a graduate student the way that they thought. And so this has likely happened, but I think it would be important to know what your options are by talking to a leader like a director of graduate studies in your program. Because what you might be able to do is they might be able to support you through the process of finding a new advisor. I mean, I would say, honestly, if there's any good news, it's better for this to happen at the beginning than for you right. to have burned two years, right? And you're still kind of at the beginning, but you've already used burned two years. And then they leave and you feel like you're stuck at square one starting over. Because that happens too, by the way. Um, so I think I would get have letters. some of those conversations. We do. We do. So have those conversations with some leaders in your department um, just to find out what your options are. Because I don't necessarily think you necessarily have to delay your training. You're already there. You know, you're, you're ready to get started. So before you take that step, just, just I want to make sure you know what all your potential options are that are on the table. And there's somebody at the university that can help answer that question, whether they have a policy for helping you or whether you're fully on your own, go to the director of graduate studies and at least make an inquiry about whether there's an option at the same university that can help you get through a PhD program. And you may not like the option, but at least find out whether you have the option. Um, so the next question really, Josh, is around this, this notion that their current PI raised about prestige, about this you know, attending the same university that you went to for undergrad. And, you know, can you even get a job if you have a PhD from this university? So C asks, 
should I take a year off to reapply to more, quote, prestigious universities? I found a new PI at my university, and she's doing research that I'm interested in, but I'm having second thoughts. What are your thoughts on university prestige versus the overall happiness of someone in a PhD program? In my opinion, I think I would be very happy at the school. However, other opinions make me second-guess my choices, and I wish I was better at shutting those voices out. Prestige. The most important thing, or the supremely most important thing, Josh? <laughs> to me, the most important thing I heard was that C thought they could be very happy at this school, and there were things about the school that made them happy to be there. And at the end of the day, this is one way I've always thought about it when I felt like I was getting conflicting advice, even from people I would maybe on some level consider mentors or advisors, is at the end of the day, you're the one who has to live your life. They don't have to that wake advice, up. Josh. I got totally the advice got that advice. That from the perspective of the person giving the advice made sense, but did not make sense for you, Joshua, right? It, it was somebody else's experience, not your experience, and, and your life worked out great. And for them, maybe it wouldn't have been. Who knows? That's right. And so you just have to remember this is your decision at the end of the day, and it is good. It is a good thing for us to seek advice from people we think might have a different perspective. But at the end of the day, if you think you're happy there, you know, you know yourself better than, than they do too. So I think that was going to be one of my main questions or one of my main responses to this idea of, all right, well, I'm in this situation. Should I just use this opportunity to leave this school and maybe just try to seek out some more prestigious school? And I would say no, not for that reason alone. I think if, you know, if I was hearing C say, well, there's not really research I'm interested in at this school, um, that might be a reason. Or if they said, you know, I really hate living in this town. I wish I was closer to my family or whatever. That might be a reason to stay. But, you know, some random advisor said something about prestige being important. Um, I, don't, I would not let that be motivating to me. And I think it's important to realize if you look at people who are successful in science, whether that's an industry or faculty or whatever, they don't all come from the same three Ivy League schools. I mean, sure, a lot do and some do, but you know, even just look at the faculty at your own institution. Like, go through, look at all their bios, look at where they did their PhD. It's not they went to a lot of different places, a lot of different types of schools. And one thing I tell students all the time, it's just because a school has a well-known name, that doesn't mean it's the right fit for everyone, right? Sometimes uh, those schools, um, because of that prestigious name, that draws a lot of people and that can impact the culture, sometimes in negative ways. Um, I remember when I was applying to graduate programs myself, one of the schools on my list would probably have been uh, thought of as a quote-unquote prestigious school. And I got into that school. Uh, I also got into a school at... No bragging now, right, Josh? <laughs> Humble brag. You like how I put that in there. Uh, but, but the reason I bring this up is not to toot my own horn, which I'm happy to do. But I distinctly remember I had also gotten into this state school down the road. And I was really torn because on the one hand, I really felt in my gut that I was happier at that... Uh, would be happier at that other school. But I can distinctly remember a faculty member from prestigious school saying, well, if you get in here, why would you not come? Like, this is... A yeah. yeah, and that eliminates this question of like, oh, it's in a different town or a different region. They were right next door to each other, one with quote-unquote more prestige than the other. It's compelling. It feels compelling in that moment. It really does. But, you know, what I don't think is... 
like prestige alone is definitely a bad reason to change, especially because you're saying you're happy there. And again, you know, time is time. I really have so much time, right? I wouldn't want you, you're there now. You said there's a PI who's there, who you think you might be interested in working with. You seem to like living there. You're familiar with the place. Um, I'm not hearing other red flags about being there other than some jerk PI had a stupid opinion. So I would say pursue your options there if that feels right, right? If those are truly the only reasons you're thinking about moving on. Um, But, you know, if if doors shut for you there, and then maybe this is a time for a change and you, you know, spend some extra time moving on. But I would hate for you to burn a year to try to move on. And there's no guarantees, by the way, right? If you (laughs) tried to move on and apply to prestigious school, I wouldn't want you to leave this behind. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have great outcomes if you have your PhD from the school you're at now or prestigious school, you know, a few States away, but you don't get those years back. Yeah. And I think keeping in mind the type of job you want at the end or the type of university, or I, I, I'm assuming if you want to teach, you're interested in the university. So thinking about, do I want to be at a smaller liberal arts college? Do I want to teach at an Ivy league school? Some of those things may determine, uh, the name brand on the school. Josh, you have, you've been on study sections. Have you been part of faculty hiring committees? Or, or mate, you've been around that space. I'm, I'm interested in knowing whether as the resumes or the CVs pass around the table, do people say, oh, MIT, ha, ha, or do they, you know, is that part of the conversation? Or do you think it weighs on, on the faculty's minds? I think it can. I think depending on what you're doing and where you're trying to do it in some ways. I'm I'm also, I want to be clear. I'm painting with a very broad brush here, right? I think there definitely are nuanced decisions that happen that people make at lots of different places. But I think also there can be like, if you're applying for jobs at a really prestigious name school, then you might get more bang for the buck. If you also have credentials from some other similarly named school, that being said, I also know plenty of people who maybe, you know, they get through grad school, maybe they went to a less well-known place, but they have this goal at the end of grad school that they want to go on and be faculty at a really top school, top quote unquote prestigious school. Well, you know what? You can then move on and do a postdoc at that type of place. And and I actually do know faculty who did just that. You know, they real and I've actually have had some conversations with faculty who coming out of undergrad realized I'm not ready to be in that type of environment. Like I will quit. Like I will not survive if I go to that type of environment to this really pressure cooker, prestigious school. So I'm going to go to the They don't want to be learning school. there. They want to be working there maybe, but not learning there. Yeah. And you know, maybe they just were self-aware and they realized like, well, at this point in time, I need to be closer to my family or I need to be somewhere that there's a more established support network. But then what they did is they went and did a postdoc at a place that was more like that, that then helped to set them up for that type of job at that type of place, if that was something they wanted to do. But I think what is more important is not just pursuing something for the name, if it's not the type of work you want to do, and there's not other reasons why that is the right place for you to be. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say having you know, a great publication record at a quote unquote less prestigious school is better 
than a failing out of a very prestigious school or maybe really struggling, struggling to publish, struggling to get work done because you're a fish out of water or it's not a good fit for you or the research environment is just caustic. So I think I, I love your suggestion about the postdoc options, 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 options. If you do really well, you find a great fit right now for your PhD, which is a very hard time in life. So finding a good fit is important. Moving on to that postdoc and and kind of bumping up to the next level, if that's what you decide you want, you're going to know so much more and you have the option. So I, I just love that advice, Josh. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, the advice about thinking about institution names is very similar to the advice that we often give about choosing a lab and how you choose, yeah, how you choose a lab to join. You know, on one hand, you might say, I really need to join this PI's lab because they're a super famous scientist and the science just seems like way cool, cutting edge. I mean, yeah, they're not around a whole lot and I've heard stories that they yell at their grad students, but man, the opportunity to work with that scientist is amazing versus going to an environment where you're going to get great mentorship, but maybe the science isn't exactly what you thought was the coolest science to do. Because I've seen that play out so many times where at the end of the day, if you ignore the red flags, you ignore the mentorship, you ignore the support, you will grow to hate the science and you'll end up bailing altogether <laughs> on the science, right? Uh, but by pursuing environments where you can thrive, that's going to lead to the best results for your career in the long run. Josh, I love it. I think this is a good place to leave it. Um, thank you to the people who write to us. It's, it's really helpful for us to hear your questions. Sometimes we get emails and we respond directly. Sometimes we read them on the show. But I'm, I'm just always encouraged by hearing from people because <laughs> these questions are things that we've, we've thought about, we've worried about. Uh, this, is, this is not new. You're not alone out there being the first person to wonder about the prestige of a school. And you're not the last person that's going to wonder about it. And so having these conversations is so important. And I really appreciate everybody who writes to us. Agreed, Dan. All right. Well, speaking of that, if you are listening and you have a question of your own or a topic idea you'd like for us to discuss on the show, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money to sample all the IPAs. Thanks so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Okay, Josh, next week I want an East Coast of Ohio IPA. <laughs> I will do my best. I don't know. I've got to work on my Ohio geography first. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's no East Coast, but you, you keep looking. <laughs> I'll keep looking. All right, Dan, pleasure as always, and we'll see you next time.